0: Thank you and good evening. Really appreciate you joining me, us, all of us together. We can't really see each other. We know that uh, you're there, and so we just really want to thank you for watching. And if you're not watching uh, on Sunday evening, then those of you who are joining later on in the week, really just want to thank you for taking the time. Um, this is a privilege. It's pretty amazing when you think of just where technology is. Um, it's it's pretty awesome. So. Glad that you would take the evening to to join me. Thanks also very much to our tech people, Nick Bear, uh, is behind the lens, and, and Pastor Steve as well, who both of which who uh, have have put quite a bit of work into um, bringing about uh, this possibility. Um, this morning for me was a huge blessing to be able to see Pastor Hobbs teach and Pastor Tim as well, and uh, my family. It was uh, a great time for us really to not only hear the word, but, but also to be able to, to spend some additional time even afterwards talking about it. So, and I hope that these next few minutes will be helpful for you all as well. As a church, we're going to do our best to keep in touch with you through our email and social media. So as Pastor Tim mentioned this morning, please be looking for the daily Facebook encouragements and then also uh, for our Ladies Bible Studies, the live streams that are available those, uh, the timing for that or the info, information for that is going to be on our website, so please uh, just uh, keep yourself abreast of of, those, of that information. In addition to that, really alongside that, I'd like to encourage you all to be praying for some godly creativity in the next few weeks or however long this arrangement is going to last. In particular, you know, we have the ability to text or call or email or FaceTime pretty much anyone at any time. And if we take the time, and I really do think that's important, to take the time to think through our church family and our unbelieving friends and neighbors, we could really be a source of encouragement with really, without even really having to leave the couch. For example, uh, if you know a teacher or if you know anyone who's in the restaurant industry right now, just even letting them know you're praying for them uh, would be a huge encouragement. Obviously, there's a lot of uncertainty um, I think of James chapter 4. I got the email from Pastor Tim yesterday about uh, passages of Scripture that have been meaningful. And, and James 4 uh, was one that, that that really stuck out to me. I believe it's verse 14. Uh, the phrase that says, you do not know what tomorrow will bring. And in all honesty, most of my life, um, I've been pretty much able to assume what tomorrow would bring. Um, without being arrogant. Today, I can honestly say I do not know what tomorrow will bring. However, we know that God's in control. We also know that those of us uh, being in Christ, those of us who have Christ as our hope, we do know the end of the story, and our world doesn't. Um, they have hope, um, they have wishes, but, but we have an answer, and so we'll just pray that we would uh, have that creativity that God can give and to be able to take advantage of those opportunities. Also, uh, just on a personal note, I'd like to encourage you all to redeem your time or redeem the time with your immediate family. Uh, I've been praying specifically for our church family and how we can have deeper, richer times of Bible reading, prayer, and conversations about spiritual things while we've been encouraged to hunker down. Um, You know, with schools being what they are, with colleges being what they are, um, this is a time where we will probably have more time at home, with one another, and that we might redeem that time, and to be able to have some great discipling opportunities with our own spouses, with our, our uh, parents, with, with children, uh, just those who live with us, roommates, um, so just be praying for one another, and I would encourage you to, uh, to, to take advantage of those times. So without any further ado, um, I'm not going to be leading any hymns, I'm not going to have any special music or anything like that, Uh, but we'll just go uh, right to prayer, and then we'll uh, look into the Word. We're going to be in Luke chapter 6 this evening, and I look forward to sharing God's Word with you. So before we do that, let's pray. God, you are good, and we thank you so much for the privilege of being able to gather. Uh, We gather digitally, but we still gather. And God, I thank you for uh, the opportunity that that the technology that we have affords us. Lord, I think of of those in the the first century, Christianity, who longed to see each other. I think of Paul talking to the church at Rome, how he desired to be with them and to see them face to face. Or think of even Paul with the uh, pastors in Ephesus who knew that that was going to be the last time he saw them face to face. And Lord... We enjoy the technology to be able to see each other face-to-face often. So, God, we just take this moment to to thank you. And we also thank you for our people who are uh, convinced that this is a need and have put the finances uh, behind that conviction and have allowed for our church to be able to do what we do. So, Lord, we give you praise. I pray that as I share the word, that it might be clear and it might be biblical. God, I pray uh, that you would... Use your word and the Holy Spirit to change us, to make us more like your Son. God, as we look at Jesus, the ultimate disciple maker, uh, the one who set the example and gave us uh, the command to go make disciples, God, I pray that uh, the reality of that would <clears throat> play out in our lives, uh, not just in who we are, but our behavior as well. Lord, we thank you for the example set not only by Christ, but by his followers and the followers of his followers. Lord, we think of the examples of those who have gone before us in our lifetime, or those who are watching now, uh, thinking about the people that influenced their life for Christ. And we thank you for those who influenced those people. Lord, it's been a, a really a pedigree of, of godly people throughout the centuries that have carried forth the gospel and lived it out to where we are where we are now. And so I pray as we study your word, that we might carry that torch, as it were, uh, that, that uh, we might be worthy, living worthy of the gospel that we've been called to, uh, called to follow. So Lord, thank you again. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen. So if you have your Bibles uh, or cell phones or devices or whatever, if you could turn to Luke chapter 6. We're going to be in Luke 6 this evening. And we're going to be looking at uh, 11 verses, verses 39 through 49. Um, I would strongly encourage you, if you haven't already, to listen to, or better yet, to watch Pastor Hobbs's message two weeks ago as he spoke from Luke 4 and Luke 6. The first half of that message was a lot of New Testament geography, Uh, This passage, Luke 6, is the uh, Sermon on the Mount. I know we're familiar with the Sermon on the Mount uh, from Matthew chapter 5, but this is a a parallel passage in Luke. And so Pastor Hobbes did a fantastic job walking us through that geography, why it was significant to the passage, to Christ's instruction. Uh, So please, uh, if, if you have the time, go back, watch that sermon, or listen to that sermon, in that sermon, he also spoke uh, of, of the reality of, of what the uh, disciple of Jesus Christ would be. In Luke 6, Jesus prayerfully selected who his disciples would be. And after he chose the 12, he described their identity in the Beatitudes, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are the meek, uh, you're familiar with those. But as Pastor Hobbes preached two weeks ago, Christ wasn't sharing anything radical or new. He was really just getting to the heart, Jesus was just getting to the heart of the Old Testament scriptures, that God cares about our heart and not just outward appearances. Yet, it is impossible to have a heart that loves God and not have the outward evidence of that reality. Here in this section, verses 39 through 49, Jesus describes what the disciples of Jesus Christ, what their ethic would be how they would live as disciples of Jesus Christ. And so tonight, I want to leave you with this principle, that if you have given your heart to Christ, the pattern of the way you live should match your identity in Christ. If you've given your heart to Christ, the pattern of the way you live or your lifestyle, maybe better put that way, should match your identity. That is hardly a new principle. And in fact, as we look at the scriptures this evening, we're going to be looking at very familiar scriptures. So, Uh, Very rarely do I ever have an original thought. Um, Most of it is borrowed or shamelessly stolen from really smart people that are around me or have written really good books. Um, Tonight is going to be one of those nights uh, where there's probably not going to be much original thought. And that's okay because of really just the truth of God's word and what we need to be reminded of. So let's look at verse 39. You uh, follow along as I read. And he also, Jesus, also spoke a parable to them. A blind man cannot guide a blind man, can he? Will they not both fall into a pit? A pupil is not above his teacher, but everyone, after he has been fully trained, will be like his teacher. Why do you not look at or why do you look at the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your eye? Or how can you say to your brother, "Brother, let me take out the speck that is in your eye, When you yourself do not see the log, or the beam, that is in your own eye, you hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take out the speck that is in your brother's eye. For there is no good tree which produces bad fruit, nor, on the other hand, a bad tree which produces good fruit. For each tree is known by its own fruit. For men do not gather figs from thorns, nor do they pick grapes from a briar bush. The good man out of the good treasure of his heart brings forth what is good, and the evil man out of the evil treasure brings forth what is evil, for his mouth speaks from that which fills his heart. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and acts on them, I will show you whom he is like. He is like a man building a house who dug deep and laid a foundation on the rock. And when a flood occurred, the torrent burst against that house and could not shake it, because it had, all, it had been well built. But the one who has heard and not acted accordingly is like a man who built a house on the ground without any foundation. And the torrent burst against it, and immediately it collapsed. And the ruin of that house was great." So what I'd like to do really is just point out four different characteristics or four different aspects of what a life of a disciple of Jesus Christ would look like again this is nothing new and really these principles are more general in their scope but if a person is a disciple of Jesus Christ their life will reflect that reality or that identity so first of all I look here in the first two verses a disciple of Jesus Christ will be looking at the prospect of himself being a discipler or put it this way he will be preparing for leadership. In verse 39, we read that Jesus spoke a parable. A blind man cannot guide. A blind man can he? And the obvious answer is no. Will they both fall into the pit? The obvious answer is yes. A pupil is not above his teacher, but everyone, after he has been fully trained, will be like his teacher. You don't have the great commission in this verse. You don't have Jesus going out and telling them to make disciples. But you do see the principle of teacher and student relationship and how the student will ultimately model his teacher. Now, if you've gone through the Foundations books, for example, you've seen the question at the end of the chapter, do you know this content well enough to be able to lead someone else? In a sense, that's what verses 39 through 40 function as in Jesus' instruction to his disciples. These disciples of Jesus because that's who he's talking to. If you look back in verse 20, Jesus directly addresses the disciples. These disciples were expected to become disciple-makers themselves. And by God's grace, they would become like Jesus, their teacher. And in time, others would become like them. Now, this becoming like their teacher is linked to the following thoughts, and and we'll get to those in just a bit, but this becoming like their teacher was more than just becoming like him in knowledge. To be sure, there is no replacement for knowing God's Word more and more. When we think of a teacher and, and what makes a person qualified to be a teacher, it's in large part what they know. The fact that they have been trained, that they are competent in whatever field of study they have, And so when they get in front of a class, they get in front of their students, they're speaking as one who knows something about what they're talking about. Um, And that is true. If and when we are given the opportunity to be able to communicate God's word to someone else, it should be the case that we know God's word, that in order to effectively communicate it, we are knowledgeable of it. But wisdom comes also, not just through knowledge, but through experience. Considering Christ's audience, yes, he was talking to his disciples, but in this audience there were undoubtedly some Pharisees, religious leaders, who knew a lot about the Scripture. Christ wasn't just making a commendation for teachers to have superior knowledge. No, he was talking about them in particular, in the manner that they model what they are leading others to do. Um, just as a, a point of illustration, I have several friends that are uh, personal trainers. They do that for a living, where they exercise, they teach people how to exercise, they they give them good form, they show them different exercises that will strengthen you know, certain areas. And, In knowing those people, they take their own personal health quite seriously. They exercise. They eat healthy. They want to walk the walk in addition to talking the talk. Uh, For a personal trainer to train without himself being trained, but then also living out the training he's giving or she's giving, Uh, would be hypocritical. And that's really where the flow of the argument goes here in this passage. And what Jesus is saying is you can't be spiritually blind and expect to lead someone who is also spiritually blind. No, the teacher will become, I'm sorry, the student will become like the teacher and the teacher ought to be spiritually seeing. And so we have this preparation for leadership, putting this Uh, uh, perspective really in the the minds and the ears of, of those who are following Jesus Christ for what they would become. But the second characteristic or aspect of a life of a disciple of Jesus Christ is having clear discernment, both of oneself and of others. Let's look there in verse 41. And again, he's continuing the thought from verse 40. Why do you look at the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that's in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, Brother, let me take out the speck that is in your eye when you yourself do not see the log that is in your own eye. You hypocrite. First take the log that, out of your own eye and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Now, obviously, Jesus is using a technique which we would call hyperbole. It's an exaggeration for effect. It's not that someone is walking around with a literal beam coming out of their eye and I'm guessing that the audience listening to Jesus might have chuckled as they heard him give this description because just the mental picture of something like that is quite funny. However, the point is clearly made. How can you having something so conspicuous in your life point out something relatively inconspicuous in someone else's life? What Jesus is calling for is he's calling for the one who's been fully trained to be naturally trained or fully trained to look at himself. Now, the context of this passage a lot of times can be uh, misunderstood. And what I mean by that is the perception can be that any judgment is wrong because, hey, we're all hypocrites, right? So, you know, don't judge. You, know, you shouldn't judge lest you be judged. Don't condemn lest you should be condemned. You know, we even see Jesus saying that earlier on in the passage. Is that what Jesus is saying completely? Meaning this, is Jesus saying that there should never be any type of judgment made? That uh, unless you are absolutely perfect, that you shouldn't give any amount of correction or, or, or help to someone who might have a spiritual issue in their life? I don't think that's what's being said. Um, and unfortunately, this charge of hypocrisy... Can be used as an excuse to dismiss accurate judgments of others. In fact, as I think of my own life, I think of times where someone has come to me and shared a concern or shared a, a legitimate criticism, only for me to somehow discount that criticism because of the lifestyle of that person. When in fact, looking at that criticism or looking at that concern at face value, there's legitimacy to that. You know, we can say, ah, consider the source. But in code, that's like, "Eh, ignore them. And all the while, recognizing that, you know what, what they were saying really is true. Jesus' point here is clear vision for yourself. In fact, he makes that quite clear when he says, you hypocrite. He's pointing out the hypocrisy of this statement. Look at your own self first. Removing one's own spiritual impairments is necessary but it's necessary so that he can rightly help his brother. Notice here in this passage, the repetition of the word brother in verse 42. How can you say to your brother, brother, let me take out the speck that is in your eye. You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take out the speck that is in your brother's eye. That's significant that he repeats that three different times. Why? Because at the very least, He's talking about a familial relationship or a family relationship to where if a person is a brother, there should be care. Care is assumed. And so the goal here isn't just simply stop being a hypocrite. It's by taking care, spiritual care of oneself, by introspection, by by confession, repentance. Then there will be the opportunity to be able to provide spiritual care for your brother. Jesus is encouraging right judgment within God's family, discernment of each other's faults without, hypocr- without hypocrisy. See, the ideal is for everyone to have nothing in their eyes. You know, it's not like who can have the smallest speck. No, it's who can have no speck in their eyes. So right now I'm wearing contact lenses. And if you wear contact lenses, you know what it feels like to have even the smallest little eyelash underneath your contact lens. It's like you want to rip your eyeball out of its socket because it is so painful. Your, your eyes start um, you know, watering and, and it's, it's, oh, it's a pain. The ideal is having a contact lens that's clean. You want eyes that are clear. Clear vision is ideal. Well, spiritually the same is true. It's not that who can have the smallest fault, it's how can we help one another to where we are all walking in Christ's likeness And that may be corrective instruction to a brother, but prior to that, introspection as to whether or not you or I am walking uprightly. God wants us to examine our own lives and to live in agreement with what we believe. So we've looked, first of all, at preparation for leadership, a disciple of Jesus Christ, His life will look like preparation for leadership. It will also look like clear discernment of yourself and for others. Thirdly, the disciple's life will bear fruit of what he or she is. Bear fruit of what he or she is. Look in verse 43. For there is no good tree which produces bad fruit, nor, on the other hand, a bad tree which produces good fruit. For each tree is known by its own fruit. For men do not gather figs from thorns, Nor do they pick grapes from a briar bush. The good man, out of the good treasure of his heart, brings forth what is good. And the evil man, out of the evil treasure, brings forth what is evil. For his mouth speaks from that which fills his heart. Back in verse 40, students are supposed to look like their teachers. Well, they will look like their teacher. The same principle applies applies here, where people will reflect what's in their hearts. And while we're not gods, none of us is a god, none of us is a prophet or a son of a prophet, to quote the Old Testament, seeing fruit of one's faith is not rocket science. Good people, what we would say godly people, yield good fruit from their good heart. Evil people will yield evil fruit from their evil heart. But the text there actually describes it as being stored up, evil stored up in their heart or good stored up in their heart. So their hearts are naturally reflected in their behavior. And at its most basic level, this is love for God and love for others. The two greatest commandments. Especially brothers and sisters in Christ. Now, I do find an aspect in this passage. uh, It's it's very clear what it's saying. But I do find an aspect of this passage that that um, lends itself towards assurance of salvation. In that assurance of salvation is not just personal introspection, meaning, hmm, have I borne fruit of my salvation? Am I truly saved? Well, there's value in that, and in, in fact, we're commanded in, in I, I believe it's uh, Philippians chapter two, and Second Corinthians chapter thirteen, where we're to examine ourselves to see whether or not we're truly of the household of faith. But bearing of fruit is something that is. Obvious. It's something that is evident for others to see. And so, assurance of salvation here, knowing that as a disciple of Jesus Christ, I am good in God's eyes, doesn't mean I am inherently good. It means that God's goodness through Christ has been imputed to my account. So, when God sees me, he sees his son Jesus Christ. And as a result, I am good in God's eyes. Thus, I can be assured of my salvation. This assurance of salvation, then, is a communal aspect to knowing that I'm saved. Maybe if I can put it this way. This is a simple illustration, maybe a silly illustration. So if you're reading an article online, and you get to the bottom of the article, there's at least most articles, there's clickbait. You know, there's those little icons with with uh, fantastic headlines or or things that are you won't believe what Honey Boo Boo looks like in ten years or twenty abandoned places that were once tourist destinations. You know those those type of things. Well, every once in a while, I'll see one uh, that that comes up that lo- that reads something like twenty famous people you didn't know were devout Christians, and I took the bait. I clicked on it and I looked at whoever it was was on the list of. These famous people, they were some were famous actors, they were entertainment stars, athletes, influencers, models, politicians, you name it. They were on this list of people you didn't know who were devout Christians. And I get, you know, if someone is an athlete or they're an actor or whatever, um, it's not their job, it's not their profession to be a Christian. They're known for being a famous whatever. But the point of the article really is somewhat sad. In the sense that in the eyes of these writers, it's perfectly normal to have someone be a devout Christian and yet have a life that seems to give relatively little evidence of that fact. In fact, as I clicked on the article, there was part of me that regretted doing as much just because I think they used some of the most provocative pictures of famous people to illustrate. Look, they're living one way, but really they are devout Christians. I'm not trying to judge or be judge What I'm trying to say is that when a person is in Christ, their lifestyle will reflect obedience. The more you get to know a Christian, the more that you should be able to see the fact that their life reflects that. And again, I'm not making a judgment. I'm not God. I'm not a prophet. But when I die, I really, really hope that people aren't scrambling to find out ways where they can receive comfort by the fact that there was a time in my life where I gave evidence of being saved. And I know sometimes when it comes to loved ones, that's all we have to go off of. Maybe there was a profession of faith when they were younger, or, or maybe there was a time where there was a greater level of spiritual sensitivity. But if we are disciples of Jesus Christ, and the expectation is for God to continue to grow us and change us then the evidence of our discipleship should only be that much more clear just like the evidence of a healthy plant should be healthy fruit bearing you know think back to the main point of the sermon followers of Christ should have a pattern of living that matches their identity in Christ how would you know that how do you know if this is true yes we're called to live our own lives but others speaking into our own lives and telling us what we really look like is very, very helpful. So I had the privilege at times of going and visiting saints in the hospital. And can I tell you some of the, the sweetest memories I have of some of you in the congregation is seeing you in a hospital, not because you're sick, but seeing you interact in times of duress, in times of physical pain, seeing how you treat some of the uh, healthcare officials, uh, how you are dealing with your spouses or family members, um, treating the hospital staff. You're showing you, you, those those times you showed your your Christian identity by something as simple as kindness when being in a tremendously difficult situation, and all that is is fruit bearing. It's showing your identity by your actions in this passage gives uh, one of the perhaps the most clearest ways of revealing the nature of, of an individual, whether good or evil, and that is by one's tongue, by what we say. You know, in my house we have this mantra that goes something like this, you learn the most about yourself when you don't get your way. When things don't happen on your timing, when something is said in a way perhaps that you don't appreciate. When expectations that you have that maybe you didn't even realize you have, when those expectations aren't met. You know, these next few weeks, perhaps even months, will be a litmus test for us because we're going to have to deal with not getting our way. In fact, looking even just at this past week, how many people do we know, or even within our own lives, have been touched with this reality where things were changed outside of our control? and we had to respond right now the world is watching and it's an opportunity for us to bear even more fruit because of the nature of Christ likeness that we have um, as a disciple of Jesus Christ so we said already that the disciple of Jesus Christ his life looks like preparing for leadership his or her life looks like clear discernment of yourself or others it looks like bearing fruit of what you are, but then finally, their life looks like doing, being doers of the word and not just hearers. Let's look then at verse 46. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and acts on them, I will show you whom he's like. He's like a man building a house who dug deep and laid a foundation on the rock. And when a flood occurred, the torrent burst against that house and could not shake it because it had been well built. But the one who has heard and has not acted accordingly is like a man who built a house on the ground without any foundation. And the torrent burst against it and immediately it collapsed. And the ruin of that house was great. You know, the assumption in this passage is that knowledge is not enough. And that... um, personal application is something that uh, is essential to being a hearer of the word. Uh, At the beginning of this passage, the person says, Lord, Lord. So they're affirming at some level, some allegiance to God, and yet their lifestyle would seemingly go against that. You know, Jesus uses this illustration of two homes that are built, one that's built with a solid foundation and one that's built on the sand. And if you're like me, you probably have The Wise Man Built His House Upon the Rock going through your brain right now. I do. And if you didn't, now you do. Uh, But we know that song, right? The rains came down and the floods came up and the house on the rock stood firm or the house on the sand went splat. Yes, why? Because of the foundation. But before the rains came down and before the floods came up, the houses basically looked the same. Anytime you have new construction... A house looks just fine. If it's new, if it's recently built, it looks pretty good. These houses in good times look the same. It's when the storms hit that the true stability of the homes is revealed for all to see. This story that Jesus gave yes, it's a story. In fact, at the very beginning of this passage, it says that Jesus gave this parable, and that word for parable really is more like a proverb, but this story may become a reality. How much has changed? How much is going to change? What will be our reality in the next several weeks? Right now, the storms of life may look like canceled trips, canceled concerts and sporting events, canceled graduations, maybe even job changes. Now. As Jesus is describing the storm in this scenario, I believe that really this could represent two different aspects of trials. First of all, I feel like that this could represent present day difficulties that will distinguish true believers from professing believers. If you would, turn over to Mark chapter 4. Mark chapter 4. And in this chapter, Jesus gives the parable of the sower in the soils, and there's four different soils that he describes, and uh, most of you, I'm guessing, you, are, you may be familiar with this parable to where Jesus is describing where the seed lands, where it grows, or where it doesn't grow. And in verse 13, Jesus gives the explanation, and we'll start there. Jesus said to his disciples, do you not understand this parable? How will you understand all the parables? The sower sows the word. These are the ones who are beside the road where the word is sown. And when they hear, immediately Satan comes and takes away the word which has been sown in them. These next two soils, I think, are noteworthy in light of uh, our point that's being made here. That it's the storms of life that reveal the nature of our foundation. In a similar way, verse 16, These are the ones on whom seed was sown on the rocky places. Who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy. And they have no firm root in themselves, but are only temporary. Then, when affliction or persecution arises because of the word, immediately they fall away. And others are the ones on whom seed was sown among the thorns. These are the ones who have heard the word, but the worries of the world, and the deceitfulness of riches, and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word, and it becomes unfruitful. So I do think the storm points to present-day difficulties that do distinguish true believers from professing believers. But I also see the storm representing final judgment of God. That there will be a time where God will judge those who do not have Jesus Christ as their true foundation. As I look at the description there of that person, going back to uh, Luke chapter 6... In verse 49, it says, But the one who has heard and has not acted accordingly is like a man who built a house on the ground without any foundation, and the torrent burst against it, and immediately it collapsed, and the ruin of that house is great. And as I look at that individual, I have to ask myself, Is Jesus describing someone who's saved? Or is this person unsaved? And really, where I have to go is James chapter 1. In fact, this final, The title of this final point, being doers of the word and not just hearers, is taken from James chapter 1. So if you would, briefly, let's look there at James chapter 1. And we'll be starting in verse 22. James says this, But prove yourselves doers of the word and not merely hearers who delude themselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who looks at his natural face in the mirror For once he's looked at himself and gone away, he has immediately forgotten what kind of person he was. But the one who looks intently at the perfect law, the law of liberty, and abides by it, not having become a forgetful hearer but an effectual doer, this man will be blessed in what he does. find a distinction between Luke 6 and James 1 is that Luke 6 is pretty graphic describing the devastation that the storm brought to the one who did not have that solid foundation. Yet James chapter 1 is pretty graphic in the description of the one who is a doer of the word in addition to being a hearer, how he looks intently at the law of liberty and abides by it, not having become a forgetful hearer, but an effectual doer. So can this person be a doer of the word? I'm sorry, can he be a hearer of the word and not a doer? Well, The following chapter, James chapter 2, describes faith without works. And faith without accompanying works is a dead faith. Really, the beginning of of verse 46 in Luke chapter 6, where Jesus asks that rhetorical question, where he says, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? I think that's a question that isn't rhetorical. But it's a question calling for introspection, calling for assessment. Am I a doer of the word more than just a hearer of the word? So these four points uh, from this passage, very familiar passage, that the disciple of Jesus Christ is preparing for himself being a leader, a disciple maker. A disciple of Jesus Christ Will have clear discernment of yourself and others. A disciple of Jesus Christ will bear fruit of who he or she is. And a disciple of Jesus Christ will be a doer of the word and not just the hearer. You know, this message and really this passage is pretty straightforward. And just like having a pulse, having brain waves, breathing in and out, those are all evidences of someone being physically alive. Our behavior and our lifestyle will give evidence of our spiritual life. And in the days to come, while right now we have more uncertainty than we've had for quite some time, I do think that classic teabag illustration is fitting. You know, what's inside of the teabag comes out when it's placed in hot water. What's inside of you will be more visible to those around you when circumstances become more difficult. If anything, I hope that this time in God's word encourages us to prepare for our testimony to be tested. That will happen. We've been told that's part of the cost of being a disciple of Jesus Christ. Pastor Tim shared from 1 Peter chapter 4. That it is according to the will of God that we will face hardship. Our testimony for Jesus Christ will be tested. And circumstances are not going to go our way. But everyone else. Is experiencing the same thing. You know, when you consider the present-day hardships, this is an equal opportunity hardship. This is not exclusive to Christians or a certain people group. People around the globe are feeling the effects of what's going on. But as Christians, what we are and who we are should play out in how we live, and in particular, how we respond to difficulty. It's a message we're well familiar with, but it's a message of which we could do well to be reminded of, to meditate on, to discuss with those close to us, to discuss with our disciples, to where as we carry forth the hope of the gospel, that we would do it in a way that brings glory to God and reflects that difference that others might see and ultimately give glory to God by the light that we shine. So let's pray. God, thanks so much for the familiar. Lord, thank you that even in the sermon that you preached, where there are some that say that this was a different time of the Sermon on the Mount, that, that it wouldn't have been uncommon for Jesus to have preached the sermon multiple times. And think of the, we think of the disciples who may have heard it multiple times. And we think of us who may have heard it multiple times. But God, we're thankful for that. We're thankful for the fact that you are patient with us, that you don't just simply give us instruction once and expect us to somehow get it, but you are gracious enough to where you know our frame, you know that we're human, we know that we battle the sin nature, and yet you desire for us to continue to change be- to become more like your son. God, may our walk match our talk. Would the way that we live reflect who we are? And God, if there's any here that are watching, any here, That as they evaluate how they walk, and they see it in disagreement with a disciple of Jesus Christ, then would today be the day that they come to Christ. Or today would be the day that they turn from that sin, and that they place their faith completely on Jesus. Not their traditions, not their pedigrees, or not the church that they grew up in, or the spiritual people that they have as good friends. But, God, that their faith might be placed in Christ alone, through grace and faith alone. Lord, we love you. Again, we thank you for this opportunity to be around your word. I thank you for those who've joined me this night. Protect them spiritually and physically. And may they carry the hope of the gospel to wherever you might have them go. In Christ's name, amen. Thank you again for joining. It's a little awkward, but you know what? It's still great. Love you guys, and uh, Lord willing, we will see you together sometime soon.